HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm really pleased uh, to have on my show today uh, Keith Schneider. Keith Schneider edits and reports on the intersection of energy, food, water, and resources from across the United States and around the world. He is a former national correspondent and remains a regular contributor to the New York Times. He also reports for The Guardian, ProPublica, National Geographic, Energy News Network, Manga Bay Times, The New Lead, and Circle of Blue. Circle of Blue's Choke Point Project, which includes a group of reports by Keith uh, and focused on Australia, India, Mexico, Mongolia, Panama, Peru, Qatar, did I say that right? South Africa and the United States won the Rockefeller Foundation's $100,000 Centennial Innovation Award. Bravo. Uh, Keith's other major prizes include two George Polk Awards for environmental and national reporting. And the New York Times nominated him for a Pulitzer Prize in national reporting for uncovering the deteriorated condition of the U.S. nuclear weapons production plants. Boy, I think I read that article and it scared the bejesus out of me. Keith, thank you so, so much for joining us today. And then I want to also, just before we start, um, you know, what what led me to you was your September 13th article for the new lead, where you posed the question, could farm fertilizers be driving corn belt cancers? And it turns out that this is one of many stories that you have been filing uh, on the state of our waterways and our the pollution that is um, generated by our agricultural model. So tell us a little bit about that project and, and what prompted you to get onto this story in particular. First, Katie, thanks for having me aboard. You know, it, this is really important to get this story out to more and more people so that they understand the dimensions of our water pollution contamination problem the source of which is American agriculture. American agriculture is the largest polluter of water and one of the largest polluters of air of any industry that's ever existed in the United States, period. That's right. In terms of water, not coal, not not mining, not chemicals, not refining, not metal production. No industry in this country's history has, has polluted the water the way that American agriculture is now. Now, um, I say that within the context of understanding that 
this industry is also technically proficient, highly engineered, really good on genetics. I mean, it produces an enormous amount of of calories, right? So it, it yeah. produces basically, you know, a third or a quarter more calories than the entire world needs. So in terms of its product, productive capacity, it's it's really an amazing industry. It's one of the reasons that America is, is, you know, modestly stable right now, because we don't have to worry about our food supply. We can worry about the costs, but we don't have to worry about this food supply. But what's happening now is the Congress and the Biden administration passed laws, the infrastructure law, the Inflation Reduction Act, the climate provisions, which is which is putting uh, energy at the forefront of agriculture production. So agriculture is going to be looked at as a major source of energy production. And the consequences of that for water are just uh, frightening to me because the water is already contaminated to the max. Iowa has the, has the worst water quality in the country. It has some of the worst water quality in the world. Right. So... This um, I've been working on this now for almost two years. Last year, Circle of Blue published a series of articles on phosphorus pollution, which is the causes of harmful algal blooms, toxic algae that have contaminated the Chesapeake, contaminated Lake Winnipesaukee, contaminated Lake Erie, contaminated iconic waterways, is killing porpoises on the West Coast. And in doing that work, uh, I, I just naturally was led to, to led to nitrates, nitrogen, which is which is a a component of nutrients for agriculture in the corn belt. So that's 11 states at the middle of the country where most of our corn is produced. And corn is also the most heavily fertilized crop. And it's fertilized both both by chemical fertilizers and manure from livestock agriculture. So over the last 30 years or so, we've developed this amazing industrial uh, meat and dairy production system. Most of it concentrated in the corn belt. So farmers, producers are, are applying fertilizer on top of the chemical, for, applying, applying manure on top of the chemical fertilizer. Right. Manure is hev- heavily, heavily saturated with nitrogen and phosphorus. And nitrogen, just naturally, 50 to 60 to 70% of it is not taken up by the crops. So it, it, it ro- flows into the streams, it flows into the rivers, flows into groundwater. So all across the corn belt, we're talking from Minnesota down to Nebraska, Missouri, Iowa, Wisconsin, uh, parts of Kansas, you know, are, are heavily contaminated groundwater and surface water with nitrogen, nitrates. And that's how I got to the health piece of this. Right. So what you wrote about was a series of four families um, and they all lived on one road in uh, Minnesota, right? And mm-hmm. Uh, and they somehow every single one of those families had multiple cases of cancer uh, within a fairly short time span. Um, so I, I wanted you to just talk about that. But before we do that, let, let's review one thing. Um, let's start with what is the EPA regulation of acceptable levels of nitrates in drinking water? And when was that limit set? <laughs> so in 1962, the Public Health Service of the United States established 10 parts per million, 10 milliliters per liter uh, health standard for nitrates in water. And they did so because the evidence was accumulating that nitrates in water, water that was, uh, you know, babies drinking contaminated water at that level had blue baby syndrome, which is, it, it interfered with the hemoglobin uptake of their blood. And they got blue babies. And Public Health Service set that limit. And then in 1991, 
that limit was codified in federal law in the Safe Drinking Water Act, which is the federal law that protects groundwater for drinking. Right. And they codified that 10 milliliters per liter um, level safety standard into, into our drinking water law. The, the, but the evidence is clear, clearer, and this is evidence not only in the United States, but around the world, that, you know, that that's an unsafe level for long-term exposure to nitrates in water. And so um, an increasing number of epidemiology studies, many of them done in the Corn Belt, many of them done by the University of Iowa and the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health and uh, health services around the world, including the World Health Organization, have begun to you know, look at, 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 at the populations of women and men uh, exposed to nitrate levels at various, at various levels, nitrates at various levels, and have found that, 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 that the elevated risk of, that there's an elevated risk of cancers colorectal cancers, breast cancers, soft tissue cancers. And anybody who wants to know this, all you have to do is go to Google and type in nitrates and cancer. Yep. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you will you will find uh, you know hundreds of studies that that have uh, appeared many of them recently around this problem, around this around this risk. Now, Circle of Blue has been this is a uh, small news organization here in northern Michigan where I live has been tracking this, has been really interested in this, and has probably done the best work in the country on this. So two years ago, one of our correspondents, Brett Walton, who's in Seattle, tracked down a cancer cluster of kids, pediatric cancers in Nebraska, and wrote a two-part series about the links between pediatric cancers and high nitrate levels in drinking water in Aurora, Nebraska, and neighboring towns. And in doing the current project on nitrates, I was in Southern Minnesota, talking to a wonderful, wonderful lawyer who's also a farmer. Her name is Sonia Trom Ayers. And we're, I'm interviewing her and we're talking about these issues. And she says, you know, you ought to take a look up there in Dodge County, um, which is a neighboring county to her farm, where, you know, her, her mother-in-law lived there who died of cancer. Yeah. And there's a road up there. They call it Cancer Road. And of course, my ears perked up. I'm like, what? Cancer Road? What are you talking about? Well, uh, go see go see some of these folks. So I went up there and I, and I interviewed, you know, I found a couple of these people and I interviewed them about what had happened on Dodge County's County Road B, which is in northwestern part of Dodge County. Now, what's interesting, you can only do these pieces um, if you're a journalist. If you have... If you have people that you know suspect a cancer, but uh, uh, with a particular source, nitrates, but you got to track that back into their exposures. Well, Dodge County has been has been documenting nitrate uh, levels in their drinking water for decades, huh. uh, and as part, you, I mean, you they do so as a, as a as a health as a health um, safety measure because if you if you're selling a house in Dodge County. You have to know what's in the water up there because, you know, it's in the middle of both uh, livestock agriculture and heavy corn production. Right. And the nitrate, they know the nitrates in the, are in the water. And people who are buying homes need to know what, what's in their water, right? So here in my county, we, we do that with our septic systems. You have to test your septics. You have to get them clean before you, at the point of sale of your house or huh. building a new house. So they do that in Dodge County. So every, every family along this mile stretch of Dodge County, of, of, of County Road B, had a long history of nitrate well testing there. 
And there have been various and sundry civic, you know, responses to livestock op, uh, development there, mostly hog farms, um, who have been, you know, they, they've been very concerned about how many hog farms are up there. So they're very interested in what's happening in their water. And every one of those families, I, I documented four families in which there were, you know, over a dozen cancers, seven deaths. And and the water um, tests, testing that had been done by the county showed elevated le- levels of nitrates. I mean, we're talking five parts per million to up to 30 parts per million in the water there. And it corresponded, I mean, that what, what those well water tests and the cancers in those families corresponded I mean, they were very consistent. And that was why I was able to write that story. Uh-huh. Well, you know, I, I actually did quite a bit of digging around looking for more information on this. And I I, I found that there were, you know, more recent studies, but there were, you, you, you pointed to a study that was conducted as long ago as I think 22 years that linked elevated nitrate levels in drinking water with an increased risk for bladder and ovarian cancers. But, but, um, I, you know, I was just curious that 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 was one of the more recent studies and that in the past, in the very recent past, I think there was only one, the Environmental Working Group uh, did a, a series of, stu- of peer-reviewed studies around this issue, and that was in 2019. And aside from that, I really couldn't find anything else to read about this. And I was kind of struck by that because it would seem to me that you would be finding these elevated uh, incidents of cancer clusters along with the nitrates um, all through the farm belt. And yet somehow it's, it's sort of presented as if these are kind of isolated instances instead of being what I would imagine would be a cancer highway through farm country, right? I mean, like, have we seen any epidemiological studies that link all of this together? Well, the newest studies have been in Europe where it's less politically um, right. uh, hazardous. Oh, well, we're going to talk about that. Yeah. But the newest study was Mary Ward's study. I think it's 2018. The, the really important studies that started this came out of the University of Iowa. And Iowa is, Iowa is still leading the charge here. Iowa, Iowa has a group called the, called the Iowa Cancer Consortium. And it's, it's a, a collaboration between scientists and local government and state government. And, and they are very interested in this because Iowa has now the second highest cancer incidence in the country. And it's the only state in which cancer incidence is increasing. By the way, five of the 15, the, of the 15 states with the highest cancer incidence, five are in the Corn Belt. So th- there are these very strong suggestive, let's just call that links between high nitrate contamination. All those states have high nitrate contamination in their drinking water, in their right. groundwater and cancer incidents. They also are, you know, they also have higher pesticide, you know, contamination in their, right. in their water they too. They use a so, lot of herbicides, all of that right. stuff, right? So, of course. And there appears to be some sort of a link between uh, atrazine, which is a herbicide, right. and nitrates in water. That's what Nebraska is looking at. So you have in Nebraska, the University of Nebraska is very much, you know, trying to track this down. I interviewed the the uh, leader of that project, and in Iowa, I interviewed the leader of that project. And now, Andrew uh, Austin Bate, who's a Democratic legislator legislature in Iowa, announced after we, you know, right after we published this story on nitrate and cancer in Minnesota, which that's where it started. That's the dateline announced that that he's going to take up hearings early next year on cancer in Iowa and trying to track down 
the causes and the sources. And that Iowa Cancer Consortium, which is which has you know important university um, um, allies in that uh, on that committee, are very interested in tracking down. Why wouldn't they? But now, <laughs> I can think of a lot of reasons. I yeah, mean, you know, um, Chris Jones. I mean, he got he got bounced for talking about Iowa water quality. I don't see why these people are not going to suffer the same fate if they step too hard on the uh, industry toes. Well, this is coming out of the University of Iowa. Even not so. Iowa so was, State University. Yeah. I mean, so well, was Chris. Chris. Was, Chris was, I broke Chris's story. Chris has become a good friend of mine. I just saw Chris a couple nights ago out in Iowa for, for a right. meeting that I was out there. Yeah, I mean, what happened to Chris was just you know, abominable. And neither the University of Iowa, he was a researcher on their payroll, right. not a faculty, faculty, uh, tenured faculty, That's but true. neither the Iowa state and, or the university of Iowa said a word. So yes, so there's, there is a, a risk for being, uh, a public about your concerns about these kinds of issues. Nevertheless, right. um, at the university of Northern Iowa, there's, you know, there's researchers there that are very involved in this. And of course the Iowa cancer consortium and Mary, Mary Charlton is the head of it. And she's, Really, you know, she's University of Iowa, so they're they're pursuing this because they have a public health risk there. That's that's massive, potentially yeah, massive. Right, absolutely. Same in Nebraska, same in Missouri, same in Wisconsin, same in Minnesota. So uh, these things, when you're taking on a systemic challenge like this in the current context of our era, these are generational changes. You know that 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 making change on this is is a generational uh, campaign, and so. We're starting. I mean, the United States is starting to look at this, um, and, and under Biden, and the EPA is is starting to move on this. Just last week, Circle of Blue, Brett Walton, our correspondent in Seattle, broke a big story about how the EPA is going to now be taking up a formal assessment of the health risks of nitrates in drinking water. Oh wow! They, that that was you know they wanted EPA wanted to do that under Biden, but Trump. Trump administration, Trump EPA said, no, we're going to we're going to put this aside. But the, the current administration, the Office of Water, just took this up and are going to are going to uh, take a look at a formal assessment that, you know, that's if they if you know, that's a 10 year project. Right. Yeah, yeah. If they're going to rewrite the, the health standard for nitrates and drinking water, it's going to take 10 years. That's how it goes. And there's going to be it's going to be political. It's going to be a political Nightmare because the Farm Bureau and the Pork Council and the dairy producers and, you know, sure. the fertilizer groups and, you know, they're going to they're going to challenge it. And those groups have won, you know, some of the big cases in, in court about this. Sure. Absolutely. We're going to take a short break, Keith, and we'll be right back. Uh, we got to take a sponsor drop right now. But uh, stay tuned, people. We got lots more coming. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. Okay, so 
Um, that is very encouraging news about the EPA because as you um, no doubt saw in the end of my outline, I was like, do we need to get rid of the EPA? Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, you hear, I mean, if this is just the tip of the iceberg of things that have not been effectively evaluated in terms of their uh, impact on public health, um, farm chemicals are only just part of that story. I mean, parts of cosmetics, uh, personal care products. I mean, you know, uh, the list goes on and on. It's pretty scary. But um, one thing I wanted to um, go back to with you about was when you were talking about the, the idea of this is a risk. You know, they have identified that nitrates in the water are a risk uh, for public health um, issues, uh, especially for cancers of all various types um, that you ran through. But but then when does when does that become quote and this is your story I'm quoting evidence for a relationship <clears throat> between drinking water nitrate ingestion and adverse health co- outcomes? So who is going to make that determination that we've gone from a risk to a relationship? You know what I mean? These are parsing this stuff out is mm. well now they're I mean again they're these these uh, cancer the relation whether cancer whether Exposure to nitrates in drinking water is a cancer risk, right? They're they're studying large populations, right? right? Large populations. Where we know that cancer is, these kinds of cancers and these kinds of um, uh, constituents, compounds can cause cancer, generally starts with a smaller population affected. For instance, um, benzene, right? Benzene is a known cancer risk because sailors in the Navy exposed to high levels of benzene on ships, they could identify smaller populations and the high exposures. Same thing with radiation, right? Radiation is a known cancer risk, and it became very clear that it's known cancer risk, starting with, you know, Madame Curie. But, you know, miners, uh, uranium miners in the in the uh, Southwest that were mining uranium for the uh, Manhattan Project, those miners began dying of lung cancers from from exposure to the radon from uranium mining, right? That's the radon right, right. risk. And, the, and you know, tobacco, you know, tobacco and lung cancer. Well, you had, you know, prevalence of lung cancers in groups, you know, that were exposed to you know, high, high smoking risk. So to do this, you know, I have to separate all, all it. The way the epidemiologists say this is you've got to separate all the other potential risks and identify a single risk, right? So in drinking water, especially in a corn belt, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in it, right? There's, as you know. So how do you, how do you separate? Is there a synergistic relationship between nitrates and atrazine? That's what they're looking at in Nebraska. Is there a synergistic relationship between uh, nitrates and, I don't know, too far D or, 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 you know, whatever, whatever uh, pesticides they're using out there. Or even phosphorus, even phosphorus, you know, like as an additive fertilizer. I mean, that's what I mean about the sort of the failures of the F, of the EPA in the sense of like not making, um, you know, not not putting co- components together and recognizing that this can form a third component, which then could generate cancer, you know, when it wouldn't be either one on the on on its own. I just feel like there's a lot of well, very sort of you know, ser- serious tunnel vision in the way uh, chemicals are approached by the EPA and 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 politically. Politic, uh, um, vulnerable to political pressure, always. Yeah. So the EPA operates in a political maelstrom, and and it shifts its attention from one administration to the next. We know that. I mean, yeah. So you, as again, I mean, they took up the nitrate study now to look at whether nitrates and and 
are whether the current 10 part per million nitrate level is safe. I mean, they're, they're going to do it. They're going to evaluate it. Well, and they're going to take 10 years to get it done if they write a new rule. But they're doing it where, you know, they tried to do it under Obama and Trump administration killed it. So they're taking it back up. Um, you asked whether the EPA, do we need the EPA? Yes, we need the EPA. I mean, anybody who's been to India or China, <laughs> my friends come back from India and China. I'll never complain about the EPA again. <laughs> you know, the EPA has done, you know, so um, the EPA has done amazing work to me. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult work that they do. They're subject to all these political machinations. Their budgets are up, their budgets are down. I mean, to be an EPA scientist, you got to be a hero in my view. I mean, yes, they're flawed agency. What's not a flawed agency? I mean, and to regulate in the current context, whether it's a democratic administration or Republican administration, it's tough. It's very tough. But I say, the EPA is getting stuff done. I mean, they're getting stuff done. I mean, look at look at the work that they're doing out in the Klamath Basin on the, on with the Corps to take out those big dams that have been hindering salmon runs and and uh, you know distressing the Native American tribes out there for decades. They're finally getting it done. It took a generation to do that, and as I say, these things take generations to get done. These big systemic changes in America today. I mean, that's how long it takes. So we would be a much off nation, much worse off nation had we not had the EPA be enforce the Clean Water Act in its point sources. I mean, and the fact that is, is that true. they have been very reluctant. They've been re very reluctant by law to deal with, you know, any other, any other um, contamination from non-point sources. And, and that's the big flaw. And, they, and the EPA said in 2016, non-point pollution from agriculture is the worst, you know, it's the, it's, it's the major cause of pollution in the United States. And they can't get to it. And... Until we change the law or we, um, you know, consider different, consider non, so-called qualified non-point sources to be point sources. And we, let's talk about that. I was just at the Biodigester Conference in Iowa, at Iowa State, in Ames, Iowa, which, by the way, Iowa State is, you know, the, the Jerusalem to, of, of, of where we started to talk about large livestock agriculture, man. I yes, mean, they're, right. the, you know, they're, they're, the, they're the source of it. And they had this big conference on it. And. It was, you know, Katie was like, it was like, it was like what it must have been like in the early '60s when, when the utility industry got together with the Atomic Energy Commission to start <laughs> talking about, you know, civilian nuclear power, you know, where right. it's going to be too cheap to meter and it's going to be non-polluting. It's going to be the perfect thing. This biodigestive conference was like that, in which they're, you know, talking about clean energy and you know, cleaning the air of methane and you know energy from manure and how much, you know, what the power potential is and how people are going to really enjoy it. And I'm thinking, Jesus, you know, <laughs> this could make water pollution so much worse. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't stand up and make it, make it to do. I, I, I didn't, I didn't respond to it. I just was listening to it, but the, the joy and optimism in that room was just you know, frightening. Well, it is. I mean, they are treating it like it's the Holy grail. I mean, even to the point where uh, I believe some of the big companies, Car uh, Cargill, uh, maybe in um, Tyson are starting to install biodigesters uh, in some of their larger CAFOs, uh, sort of as a, you know, I mean, I see it as a sop to all of the people who are complaining about the problems from odor and water pollution. But, um, you know, they do, I mean, I went to a Cargill plant, I was given the tour of a Cargill plant out in Colorado about seven or eight years ago. And, um, they had one of the first biodigesters and they were unbelievably proud about it. And they were, they were pumping that water right back out into the Colorado river. 
I mean, you know, they were. And were they treating it? Yeah, they claimed that it was, you know, being cleaned and they were, you know, they were using the methane and their power as power for their plant. And they were taking the solids and those were now, you know, uh, sterilized. And so they could spread those as, as fertilizer, blah, 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 blah. I mean, you know, it was the holy grail. So that's that's the that's the upside of it, right? So if it's it, so the biodigestion could cure could help to limit the pollution from livestock agriculture, right? Good. But the way the agriculture sector is viewing this, and the way the EPA is viewing this, and the way the states are viewing this, is they're not going to regulate the digestate. Oh, so you good. can put this the same digester put on an agriculture operation is unregulated in how they treat manage the digestate unregulated, just like livestock. Just manure. like the manure, right? And but we the should... same the same equipment on a on a food processing plant or a or a municipal wastewater treatment plant is regulated heavily regulated, right? So in Michigan, if you put if you the other thing that you need to know, Katie, is that the is the oil industry and big ag are now joining on this on biodigestion. Really? So we have Chevron, you know, owns a a, a, a company called Brightmark, which has built five biodigesters on our big dairy cafos here. Oh, really? I mean, and they won't talk to me. So, I mean, this biodigester thing is potentially enormous story. I'm going to write the hell out of it. <laughs> but, um, it's, you know, so so that, you know, in Michigan, if you put a biodigester on a wastewater treatment plant, for instance, you have to you the, the, the liquid, you know, the liquid waste that comes out of the biodigest goes back into the system to be treated. The solids can have, if they're land treated, have to go under really strict biosolid, biosolid uh, land disposal practices. They're really strict about where they can put them and what can be in them. And oh, yes, but if you put, if you put manure into a biodigester and you have an agriculture operation, you don't have to do anything with the liquids. You can spread them anywhere you want. And the solids, you can do anything you want with them. You can, you know, so, and so the potential for digesters to make this water pollution problem worse is immense, really immense. And it's all funded, publicly funded, because the incentives to do all this stuff, there's billions, billions of dollars in this, right. you know, maze. I mean, a goddamn maze of, of this tax incentive gives you this bonus if you do, you know, put this food stuff in it or this into it. I mean, it's, there's so much opportunity for the renewable fuel standards, the low carbon fuel standards. I mean, I, I listened to all the financing thing. You can't, I mean, it, it's gobbledygook to me, but there's 20 different ways to finance these with publicly financed. Wow. And the thing is that it's expensive to do, right? So, so, so it costs millions to hook up. If you want to use your methane for, for energy, for right. gas, natural gas, to right. hook up to a natural gas pipeline, A, the cook up fees are like millions the compressing and processing stuff is millions more. So these things aren't going to go on oh, no. small CAFOs. The, the people at They're Cargill gonna... told me it cost $20 million. They were very proud. They had spent $20 million creating their biodigester thing. And it was, you know, I honestly, it wasn't huge. And this was in a processing plant. This was not at a CAFO. So this was all of the yeah. residue from uh, processing animals, i.e. all the blood, you know, the fats, the blah, you know, all of the, whatever they don't end up putting in a rendering plant and turning into, you know, all of the products that we turn stuff into. But I mean, it was, you know, they were audibly uh, patting themselves on the back, you know. Look at it. I mean, I, what, what, the, what, what this is going to do potentially is to make CAFOs even larger. 
Sure. So there was a group there, Rosaline Energy, that has like 12 CAFOs hooked up to these biodigesters. They spent $180 million. It, these are Smithfield hog operations. Right. <laughs> you know, and so they're talking about they're going to be able to try this on smaller CAFOs. No, this is going to drive larger CAFOs yes, because absolutely. CAFOs are going to become manure producers. The milk and dairy is going to be secondary to producing the energy. That's what's going to happen here. Whoa, and, you heard it here first, folks. I think yeah, you're man. absolutely right, Keith. That right. makes sense. So, well, you know, so, so, you know, it's such a great story because you can talk about the promise of it, right? If it's regulated and yeah. you can talk about the risks if it's not. Right, right. And of course, <laughs> let's point out just one more time for listeners that agriculture is largely and co almost completely unregulated, right? You are not regulated as far as how your, you know, uh, your air pollution. I know that from doing the research on CAFOs. And uh, you're not really regulated in terms of how much fertilizer you can use in pesticides and herbicides and so on. You might get in trouble if your point source, you know, if it's if you are identified as somebody who's polluting local groundwater, but otherwise, nobody's saying nothing to you about how you run your business. There's no there's no limits on how much chemical fertilizer you can put on your land, and there's basically no limits on how much manure you can put on your right. land. Although although they'll tell you, well, we we have these. We have, you know, nutrient management plans. Yes, right. And I said, well, great. You have new, which you're supposed to, you know, dictate you know, where you can spread and how much you can spread, and what times you can spread. And I say to them, well, great, you have all these things, but, you know, nitrate contamination all across the Corn Belt is getting worse, both in surface and groundwater. What's the answer to that in Iowa? Well, the MAGA legislature wants to take out the monitoring systems in the streams. Yes. That's the Chris Jones story. Right, right. Exactly. They're actually, you know, Chris Jones was hired six or seven years ago. He's a, he's a PhD chemist. He right. was hired out of the soybean association. in Iowa. Yeah. He's, he's no radical environmentalist. And, you know, they hired him to, to establish and build this monitoring system for nitrates and streams. And he did 66 stations statewide. It's, you know, 24 seven, you can watch, see, see the results of what's happening in streams on your, on your computer. And, and so they bounce him out of, out of, uh, university of Iowa and now they want to kill the stream monitoring system. Right. Very, very close. In fact, I think he, he published something today about that. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't get a chance to read it through. But anyway, um, I want to just go on for a minute um, uh, further about, uh, talk about a little bit about what it takes to, um, to get nitrates out of water. Like it's quite an expensive and difficult process. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and why, um, you know, it's been so slow to get off the ground in terms of communities that are are seriously affected by nitrate pollution, and yet they don't really have a mechanism that is effectively removing nitrates from water that's that's cost effective. That's the issue. I mean, Des Moines has a really sophisticated nitrate filtration system. Uh, they did. They had. You know, they've installed it. They tried to challenge the up, three upstate counties that were farming counties that were pouring nitrates from their fields into the Raccoon River. They lost that case in 2015. Right. U.S. District Judge threw it out under heavy political pressure. Yes. And they have a they have an extensive nitrate filtration system. It costs millions of dollars to run it. It costs millions more to build it. Right. They have to, you know, they have to change the filter. I mean, it, they can, you can do it. But if you have a small township in southern Minnesota and there are a bunch of them that have contaminated water and their groundwater and their drinking water, 
multi-million dollar systems are really, really tough to build. So the other, you know, the other thing that they consider is, is deeper wells, right? Go to a different aquifer, deeper. That costs millions of dollars too, to drill those wells and operate those pumps. Sure. So, you know, there's, there's, so what do you, what do you do about this? Well, there's federal money now to, under the infrastructure law to help some of that, you know, there's drinking water, uh, revenue, uh, sources of grants and funding to do that. Yes. And, and, and little, little towns are tapping it, but what's the real source? The real source is this is not hard to solve. If it hasn't, if your groundwater hasn't been contaminated, right? You, you just reduce the amount of nitrate and phosphorus you're putting on the ground, which right. you can do. I mean, agriculture can use much less fertilizer than they're putting on the ground. And, and I wrote a piece about that as part of this, about uh, this project, which is, Iowa State has many, many, many studies that says, you know, you can use half as much chemical fertilizer in ground and get grit and get just the same kinds of, of yields, uh-huh. uh, you know, and, and, and there's a limit, you know, if you put 150, 200 pounds of nitrogen per acre on your ground, you know, you're going to get 200 bushel per acre corn yields, right? But if you put 300 acre, 300 pounds of nitrogen on the ground, it's not going to change your corn yield. And there are these famous graphs that just show a straight line. There's a there's you know there's an endpoint on how much nitrogen you know the, the, the crop needs. You put more on, doesn't going to do anything to yields. But why do they? Why do farmers use more? It's insurance. They put more on because just in case the rain comes and washes some away, or you know there's you know they just use it as economic insurance plan. So right. if we reduce how much we're putting on the ground. It's not rocket science. You reduce more, you get less runoff. So that's one solution. Two is you can build, drill deeper wells. Three, you can install nitrate f- filtration systems. And there are some other, you know, reverse osmosis type systems that you can put on your on your drinking water. But you ought to not. You ought, we ought to have a system in which we're asking farms. I mean, these are not like little tiny little, you know, 80, 80 cow per farm uh, operations or. Right. 300 acre operations. These are massive, sophisticated. They got $600,000 tractors and a million dollar combines that, you know, their, their equipment sheds have millions of dollars of high tech equipment. These operations are highly sophisticated. And, you know, why don't states or the federal government require some monitoring wells to see what's going on with their nitrates? That's easy. I mean, if you have if you have nitrates in your groundwater, you're done because you know you know once you get toxics in your groundwater, it's damn near impossible to get it out of there. That's true. Once you've contaminated it, it's gone. So yeah, yeah. The the solution to this is not to contaminate it. That's the solution. <laughs> well, and also, I mean, the the other thing is you think. Well, you know, I think it was the environmental working group study that showed the cost to, you know, to basically to the taxpayer, essentially, uh, for what it costs for these cancer clusters or for these large populations who are are then coming down sick, lost productivity. You know, the financial burden is in the billions of dollars to not address these problems. And that's that's the part where I'm just like, I don't get it, man. You know, I don't get it. Like like you said, it's like it's very simple reduction reduce your amount. Well, same thing. I mean, it's like, you know, if you know that this is a problem, here's another way that you can, you know, save money because that's what everybody's all worried about, right? I don't know, Keith. Right. I don't know. The other part of this is there's tremendous tremendous tolerance to contaminated water here yeah. in in the in the Great Lakes region. You know, Lake Erie is a problem, but 
there isn't like this great big civic resistance, you know, protest movement. So it's similarly in the Corn Belt. I mean, True. it's accepted, you know, it's accepted because agriculture is such a big part of the economy. And so, you know, like anything else, you know, coal, you know, coal towns were very concerned about closing their coal-fired power plants or their mines, steel plant, you know, steel manufacturing towns also when environmental regulators came in to, to, to stymie the pollution coming out of the air and the water from steel plants. It's similar in the Corn Belt. So sure. you, can, you, can, you can be sympathetic to the view that, you know, we ought to be careful about what we're doing to our ma- major industry. But the other time, this is that people are being exposed to, you know, these potentially, con- you know, potentially dangerous contaminants in their water. So uh, these are not easy, but the, the, the extent of the contamination is just astonishing to me. I'd had no idea when I started this, what really what we were up right. you know, really what I was going to encounter. But, you know, so much of Minnesota's groundwater is contaminated with very high light nitrate levels, similarly in Iowa, similarly in Nebraska, Wisconsin. That's why, you know, there are these pockets of resistance in these states. And, you know, the legislatures, for the most part, are indifferent to the, the civic restiveness. Not the case in Iowa now. Iowa is starting to move on cancer and the causes of cancer in Iowa and the groundwater, um, the relationship of groundwater contamination to those cancers. Right. Amazing. Well, we got it. We're going to have to wrap it up there. This has been great, Keith. I really appreciate your time. It's a lot of fun to talk to you. Uh, and this has been a very interesting discussion. We will continue it. Tell people uh, how they can learn more about you and your work and the Toxic Terrain Project. And did well, it's I say easy that to right? get to the toxic. Yeah, it's easy to get to toxic terrain. Just you know, on Google, toxic terrain, comma Keith Schneider, and it'll, it'll all pop up. Um, they can learn more about me. I have a blog, Mode Shift. It's called M O D E S H I F T dot org. But you know, I'm one. I'm the last of the frontline <laughs> correspondents out there. You know, I have a fairly extensive profile on Google. You know, type my name into it. Plenty of stuff will come up. So that's you know. I'll be checking it That's out good. for sure. And I'll definitely read all those other hey, Katie, trees. Yeah. Thanks so much, Katie. Appreciate Thank you. you it was us. great. Yeah. Great fun. Really enjoyed it. And we'll talk to you again very soon, I'm sure. Okay. So long for Thank now. You. What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food Radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.